I don't want to be saddled with debt, wearing the corporate noose or whatever it is. I want my freedom and flexibility. I value that more than I do the perceived safety and security, which is really just a mirage anyhow. This is Unemployable, the podcast for independent workers, freelancers, Dow contributors, and other self-employed folks who want to own their employment and become self-sovereign. We may work alone, but we can be unemployable together. This episode of Unemployable is brought to you by Obelis, providing health insurance, benefits, and payroll for the self-employed. Join the community at opolis.co. Welcome to Unemployable. I'm your host, Joshua Lupinas, and today we're talking about the democratization of employment, what that means for workers and the infrastructure needed to support the democratization of work. Each year, more workers are breaking free from their corporate jobs and taking control over their work as freelancers and indie workers. This year, there are over 70 million freelancers in the U.S., and that's projected to grow to over 90 million in the next five years. Along with the growth of Web3 and its reliance on freelance labor, this episode dives deep into a conversation on democratizing work and decentralizing employment so the workers can own their work, finances, and freedom in this new economy. Today, I'm excited to be joined by John Power, entrepreneur, inventor, and the co-founder of Opolis, a digital employment cooperative for indie workers. John is also the founder and executive steward of Eat Denver. Over the course of this episode, we cover what is decentralized employment, why decentralized employment matters for workers, how Opolis is building the missing infrastructure for the future of decentralized work, future of work, Web3, DAOs, and how they are all key components to the decentralized employment future. Jumping right into today's conversation, John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. We're only here because of you, both in Opolis and Unemployable. And this is our first time having you back on the podcast since we rebranded OPR, Opolis Public Radio to unemployable. I obviously know who you are, but we've got a lot of new listeners and I think it'd be good if you tell them a little bit about your background. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's good to be back. Hopefully we'll do this a little bit more frequently. So for those that are new, I'm John Paller. I'm the founder of Opolis. I've been in the HR tech and employment systems space for 20 plus years and I've seen employment from many different angles. So the thesis that we're operating from now started in 2005. I was having a discussion with one of my employees from a previous venture back in the day and really talking about how to create better productivity for people in the workforce. And at the time we were working in contingent labor. So this was like temporary workers, contractors. And if you know anything about that space, those folks aren't typically treated very well in terms of like benefits. So they're kind of treated like second-class citizens, kind of. Is yeah, they are. I mean, it's it's no, they are. They, they I had are. to experience that at Lyft a little bit. Exactly. So we started talking about aligning incentives for the individual workers to give them more of a feeling of being valued, right? So to treat them better. And then as a byproduct, they're going to be more productive, right? That, that would seem to be correlative. So we started talking about different things that we could do. And this was all being done under the banner of a competitive advantage for like brand differentiation. But the words democratized employment came out of that conversation. It's like, you know what? I'm going to democratize employment. At the time, I had no real idea what the hell that actually meant. Or how to do well, it. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of get this altruistic idea. You're just like, yeah, I'm going to democratize employment. It was a little naive. 100% it was naive. Because you don't really, you say these things, and then like you start unpacking it, and it's like, 
oh, you know, you keep unpacking and, and then you wonder why, well, how come nobody has done this before? And, you know, because I mean, there's, it's a yeah. big world and there's a lot of people looking for opportunity and innovating. So tell me a little bit more about democratized employment. Yeah. What is it? What are some of the tenets of it? So democratized employment, another word for that would be mutualistic employment. So it's where the playing field is level between the service provider and the service consumer. So this is formally known as employer-employee. So employer-employee is a very hierarchical framework. Mutualistic employment would be more where it's like level, where it's like we're sort of peers. Mm. Hey, you have a service that I need. Hey, I've got skills that you need. Let's get together and do business together, but it's going to be mutualistic, right? Where it's not so paternalistic where I control you, right? Which is the typical employment framework. So democratized employment also has a lot of features that come along with it. You've got to be able to give individual workers the safety and security that traditional employment purports to give them. Fringe benefits, healthcare, unemployment insurance, compliance work, simplifying it so that it's a one-stop shop, but then also like de-risking things for the employer. Democratized employment is a two-way street. It's not just for the independent worker. It's really balancing the power, the risk, and ultimately making more things more fluid for all parties. If when I say fluid, I mean dynamic, high frequency, like employment's kind of kludgy, all the paperwork and compliance and all this kind of stuff that you've got to deal with. If you could actually reorganize this in a more smart way, you could actually make it so that people can move around a lot easier, and then employers could be much more agile, which is what they want. They want flexibility just as much as anybody else does. You, you answered my next question before I even got to ask it. I have a feeling this is going to be a common trend today. What are some of the benefits to employees that you would want to highlight in the change from this paternalistic system to the mutualistic system? Well, the change isn't really about the features. It's about who controls it, who is the decision maker. So democratized employment would give the individual employee the ability to make their own employment choices. So preserving the typical employment framework is what's critical. So usually when you jump out of the boat of traditional employment and you're like, YOLO, man, I'm done. I don't want to be handcuffed to the to the cube farm anymore. And I'm going to go over here. And this is like the millions of people who are quitting Silicon Valley jobs right now as part of this great resignation. Oh, yeah. And can you imagine the level of cynicism that's coming along with this? Like the attitudes are going to be pretty distinctly, you know, screw this, man. I'm going to go do my own thing. There's no loyalty. Not all of them are going to say that, but a lot of them are. Okay. It's a big middle finger to like traditional employers. And this is a trend that's been happening for some time at the youngest generation over 50% of the workforce of the Gen Zers, the Zoomers, are already doing yeah. this. They don't want the traditional W-2 job because they look up at their elders and they go, why would I want that life? I don't want that yeah. life. You know, I don't want to be saddled with debt and be wearing the corporate noose or whatever it is. So I want my freedom and flexibility. I value that more that I do the perceived safety and security, which is really just a mirage anyhow. It's not real, which is being played out. Right. And I've heard you describe these types of people as self-sovereign workers. And whenever I hear self-sovereign, I always think of those people 
who in like those cop videos, they get pulled over and they're like, you can't arrest me. I'm a sovereign citizen. Yeah, I'm a sovereign <laughs> citizen. You have we no could, jurisdiction over me. Yeah, we have no, to just I mean, back from these guys. Yeah, so self-sovereignty is a term that I think is pretty misunderstood. When we use it, self-employed doesn't quite describe it because you can be self-employed and and not have this sort of tool set that we're providing here at Aquas. So we're using the term self-sovereign worker, self-sovereign employee, because really you are an employee, but you're really the one employing yourself. So you're providing the framework, you're providing the tools, you're providing the legal framework so that you can plug into something like Opolis and then reap the benefits of the size of the Opolis community, which you could not replicate on your own, right? So right. the self-sovereign worker is really the ultimate end game of unbundling the corporate employment framework to where the individual worker actually is doing that for themselves. So usually when you're at a company, you get a pay stub every two weeks and they just put money in your account. So like direct deposit, set it and forget it. You don't really do anything, get my health care, whatever. It's easy. Okay? Sure. We've essentially recreated that simplicity, but where you're doing it for yourself. So you're not beholden to needing the permission of any other corporate entity or any other third party to be able to do this for yourself. So that's what self-sovereign employment means. It's taking control of this employment framework as an individual, but then not really compromising any of the typical accoutrement that you might have in typical corporate. I think of it as like a leveling up of, let's say there's like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but for employment. And then down here, you've got unemployed, I guess. And then right above it's I work for the man. And then, you know, I have some equity in the company. I'm self-employed. And then here at the top, I'm a self-sovereign worker. It's a great way of looking at it. As being a self-sovereign worker is the ultimate freedom for your commercial life because it's the framework that you need to be able to move around, to generate different income streams, to not have to worry about these compliance issues or being able to prove income. Simple stuff like that. It's amazing to me. I hear about this every week where people are having a hard time qualifying for apartments. Because their self-employment income doesn't cut the muster when it comes to proving that they make income. Like they have to, it's impossible. They got to have two years of tax returns. They got to do all this. It's like, what? Like, no. Well, and that problem's compounding for our friends in crypto because this whole like FTX blowing up and the contagion, like people are afraid and a lot of people get paid natively in crypto. They can be making three, $400,000 a year and the landlord's like, Nah, no, thank you. Nah, yeah, no, it's, it's stigma is perceived as being too risky and a hundred percent. So multiply that on top of like Opolis is normalizing people working in web three and in the crypto space by allowing them to plug into a traditional system. Like, well, I get a, a, a pay stub every two weeks. Yeah. yeah. You get a W2 at the end of the year. Yeah. You get group healthcare insurance. It's affordable and super high quality, like premium stuff. Yeah. Yeah, in the vein of you answering the question before I ask it, we talk a lot about on this podcast about how freelancing disconnects workers from traditional employment benefits like healthcare, retirement, like PTO. How does mm-hmm. how does Opolis solve this problem for freelancers? Yeah, we're basically, as I mentioned earlier, it's a replication of traditional employment without giving up your independence. 
So all the features that you would typically get that, that feel good, right? The reason why corporate employment has been designed the way that it is, is because it gives people a perception of safety and security. Even though there's no legal guarantees, there's no real guarantees or real safety. It makes things simpler, right? I got less to deal with, less to worry about. So my headspace is clearer. I can focus on other stuff. That psychology is really what we're replicating. So the features and benefits, healthcare, unemployment, workman's comp, compliance, reporting, accounting, like all the different things that have to be thought about. Yeah. Are done. So we replicate that experience of sitting in the cube farm, getting the semi-monthly pay stub and the annual W-2, but where you get to do it from where, with whom, and how much you choose. You're basically getting your cake and eat it too. So just to um, borrow a phrase from a founder that you are probably familiar with, there's this ability to see where the puck is going. And Opolis has been on top of this trend of seeing where the puck is going with the trend toward supporting or being part of the Web3 ecosystem and supporting DAOs. We talk about it here often, but for the uninitiated, can you explain like what is Web3, why Web3 and crypto are not synonymous, and why DAOs and what we're doing are crucial components of the Web3 ecosystem? Yeah, so Web3, you're going to get a bunch of different definitions depending on who you ask. We have. So, yeah. And so Web3 is, is sort of... Um, it might even be a moving target. I don't know. But I think Web3, to me, is, the, is really synonymous with the future of work. Now, how that looks for any one individual person is going to vary because there's going to be a lot of opportunities to choose your own adventure. Now, let me explain. So I think, one, earning opportunities are going to be abundant globally digitally meaning you're not it's not going to be geocentric so it won't be determined based on where you live your earning opportunities will no longer be tethered exclusively to your geolocation i think web3 is going to shift that paradigm majorly it's already happening in some areas like nfts games play to earn kind of things so they call that pde and there's going to be a lot of things like this, okay? So new economic models are really going to be the hallmark of Web3. And when I say economic models, I really mean earning models, like value distribution models. Like how do I generate value for myself? And these new games are going to align the selfish interests of the individuals. A lot of times we play these zero-sum games. Like we play, you know, where I win, you lose. It's very competitive. It's very, you know, Someone's got to lose in the market, right? Two-sided market, someone's got to lose, right? So I think Web3 is going to really push forward this new notion of a new paradigm of positive-sum games and these economic models that enable people to earn economic resources, essentially income, globally in infinite amounts of varieties of games that are going to be valuable, not just to the communities that are building these games, but also to an overall buoyancy of global economic market that we've never seen before. I think when you talk about step changes and efficiency captures with technology and some of the things that we've been doing in Web2, yeah, those are all fine. But like the fundamental model of how we do business is what Web3 is going to shift. 
And the models, the games, these opportunities that are going to, whether it's games, whether it's models like Opolis, other regenerative type of models that create these symmetrical outcomes of value distribution between the individual and the collective, the possibilities are endless. And we're at like the tip of the spear. Yeah, Opolis has been at the forefront of reimagining, we've talked about positive sum games for a long time. The notion of regenerative games or regenerative models is a new term. It's like a new meme. And we could thank Kevin Owaki and the Gitcoin folks for that. But it's a very apt way of describing this paradigm shift because we've thought about value as scarce. The current model of capitalism, value is scarce. And even some of the early crypto economic games talk about the scarcity as a hallmark. I don't think that scarcity necessarily is going to go away from the game design entirely, but I do think that it's going to shift in its role. And I think that we're moving into a place where we could essentially create infinite abundance. Now, if that's the case, and we can literally equip anybody in the world to be participating in these games, these economic models from wherever they are, just having a mobile device or just having an internet connection. The overall buoyancy of the global economic market. There's an efficiency that's created when we don't have to have all of these barriers and people can be employed by themselves and float around and there's not just rent seekers. I don't even know what to call them that are just gatekeeping all of these different free flows of information and people and money. What's the connection between this and this infinite abundance, like, I mean, water is still a finite natu like natural resource. Where's the line? It's a fantastic question. I don't know that I have the answer to that, actually. So right now, money, as an example, is a centralized game. There's three countries in the whole world that don't operate on centralized central banks. Okay, so the rest of them do. Money is obviously something that is not a finite supply because we money printer go burr all the time. Yeah. Quantitative easing is the term for like, print money, right? Yeah. I would look at that as like a top-down economic model. You know, the central banks control the monetary policy. They control the economic levers and pulleys. They control all of these things. So Web3 is more emergent. If you look at community tokens as an example, as a form of community monetary policy, and you could have infinite amounts of communities, that means you could have infinite amounts of currencies. And that means you could have infinite amounts of value vectors of opportunity. I don't know where it ends. I think there is a diminishing point of returns for more is not better necessarily because right. the noise to signal ratio gets a little whacked and you can only do so much as a person like you know, in the DAO community, I think I saw, uh, you know, somebody was talking about you can only really contribute to three, maybe three or four DAOs at any one time and be effective. Yeah, I tried. I wasn't able to do more than that. You can't. Like, I've tried. And I was involved in all sorts of stuff a couple years ago. And I'm just like, dude, I have to cut this back. I yeah. literally cannot be efficient on any of this. And I'm now only doing three, two really, and that's even hard, right? Sure. Because they're actually scaling and doing well. So like if somebody were to speculate, oh, you could be participating in a hundred DAOs and earning all this income. It's like, yeah, I mean, you could in theory, but like, sure. is that really going to happen? So I think there's some, you know, this balance that we'll figure out at some point, like what is the optimum 
sort of opportunity. But I think notwithstanding that, the frameworks, we still need, I'll give a good example here. If I'm working for a corporation, that corporation takes on a lot of risk with me. And if I'm allocating any significant material amount of my time to something else, that's not good for my employer. Right. And if I'm in a paternalistic situation, they can control that. They can say, well, now you can't do that. You, you got to focus all your time and attention here because I'm, I'm, con- I'm working. I'm a mercenary at their behest. I've got to do what they want. Now, yeah. largely that's an economic thing because they're taking a lot of risk. They have a lot of cost. The cost is what's driving that. The risk is also costly. So all of this is the actual legitimate cost and the, and the futuristic risk cost drive this behavior. Now, if you unbundle from that and you go to mutualistic where you no longer have this, these people, the employers formerly known as don't have that embedded cost because you're taking on the risk of yourself. They no longer care. They just want you to deliver what you say you're going to deliver. Okay. Well, I'm going to deliver X, Y, Z by A, B, and C. And as long as you do that, everybody is good. Because now it becomes about like statement of work or deliverables based engagements. Like relationship is based on delivery of results, not on time and risk, which is what this model does. There's a lot of people who still work inside of the old subjugatory web two employment models. We've talked about and pretty much proven why Opolis is best for DAO workers, freelancers, both in the web two world and in the web three world. What would be your direct appeal? to, I don't know, let's call it a Web3 company that has a handful of employees up to, I don't know, like 100 employees that are just like, nah, it's just easy for us to use Gusto or Trinet or whatever. I guess it all, there's a few things. One, it would boil down to values. Like, you know, if you're a Web3 company practicing Web2 behaviors, then maybe it's time to take a look at the mirror and say, okay, could we take a step towards decentralization and, and would Opolis or something like that really facilitate that? And the answer is, yeah, it would. We've done this for several large organizations, MakerDAO, Shapeshift being a few, where they've decentralized their entire operations, but they didn't want to just throw their people out of the boat as they were dissolving these you know, physical, these like jurisdictionally tethered entities and they went ethereal, like, where are you going to go? Well, come to Opolis and then they can take responsibility for themselves. To me... Corporations who hire their people, follow the compliance, do all that. Yeah, you got to do all this stuff. But that's business people doing business things. They're not thinking like, is there a different path? Is there a new way we could accomplish the same goal? Now make it more fluid for everybody. Make it more mutualistic for everybody. It's going to be a function of time, I think, more so than anything. But I think this is going to become a fashionable practice. I don't, I don't, if you talk to people, they don't really want the risk of all the employment. Some of them like the control. But like you can still get deliverable-based work dialed in and have all the control that you need to get the productivity that you need. You can do all of that. So my call to action would be like, look, if you're considering decentralizing your labor force, come talk to us because we do have some transitional plans and some other things that we can help you with. We aren't really aiming to be a B2B traditional payroll service where we just go after big companies and all of that. Like our... Constituency is much easier. Uh, and not it the is. Well, but it's not. It, that's the point. It would be easier to, from a distribution and scaling standpoint, certainly early stages is much easier because you know exactly where to go. But like for us, it's about a movement. 
It's about a paradigm shift and we're going where the trend is going. Like doing the corporate based focus is only where things are today, but where things are going is a whole new thing. And to my knowledge, we're the only ones who are actually like really doing that. That would have, because I was quoting you earlier, that would have been a good opportunity for you to say to skate where the puck is going. <laughs> yeah, skate where the puck is going. Yeah. That's, that's a Wayne Gretzky quote, actually. So that's yeah. not even me, technically. But I think that's a good transition to something you said earlier, which is that Gen Z has taken an honest look at corporate employment and they're just going, nope. And based on our research, Gen Zers are opting for freelancing opportunities more than traditional jobs. Yeah, over 50%. And this is pre-pandemic numbers. It was 53%. So I'm going to wow, guess it's, be it's higher probably, now. yeah. What do you think is driving this trend and what are your thoughts on it? So if you look at the social dynamic of who the Gen Zers are, who are their parents? Okay. Are they Xers or boomers? Okay. So their parents are operating from the old work paradigm. And if you look at how happy their parents are in the work that they're doing, they ain't so happy. Okay. They've tethered their themselves to these companies for decades. Yeah. And what do you get out of it? Right? Look at their life. Do the Gen Zers look at their parents and say, Oh, they're really happy people? Yeah, I want that. <laughs> okay. Oh, I want that. No, in fact, it's the opposite. They're like, No, <laughs> no thanks. Okay. So some of this is just an allergic reaction to like, no, they yeah. don't know any different. It's not like they know firsthand because they don't. They're just watching the social dynamics of their elders and they're saying no thank you to that. And the if you get under the covers of what it is, the older populations valued safety and security above all else. So this is raised by that generation that was like in the soup lines for the greatest generation. Yeah. The greatest generation, which is the world war two generation and the great depression generation. When the industrial revolution was taking people off the streets and putting them into assembly line workers in Detroit, making a good wage, being able to buy a car, have the life. There was a social contract there based on loyalty that really worked well for what the alternatives were. So the alternatives were pretty bleak. Yeah. You had a one in 10 shot of getting killed in a steel mill, you know, but like you could go to the auto workers or you could go to in then competitive advantage for labor started adding more fringe benefits and retirement and all these other things that like I could basically, instead of just trying to figure it out on my own, I can actually plug into these systems. They'll t take care of me. I mean, yes, it was paternalistic, but they kind of liked that because it, it gave yeah. them refuge from a pretty crappy situation otherwise, right? Now, we haven't seen the Social Security and all that was launched during the Great Depression and World mm -hmm. War II. So, like, we, we have a lot of different, we have a much different social fabric than we had back then. And we haven't seen that kind of economic turmoil like ever and even if you want to say the crash of 2008 was bad it's not on I that mean, same scale no i mean come on not i mean we didn't have bread lines and all that kind of stuff and we had all sorts of unemployment extended benefits and like bailouts yeah. and people choosing grad school or entering <laughs> the workforce it's not exactly the same as like standing in line for hours for food no i mean you had 20 plus percent unemployment wages were depressed like the whole thing was like Super yeah. not good. So 
people valued the safety and security, right? Like, hey, I just want to be able to provide for my family. And they were given the white picket fence opportunity, right? So like they yeah. could go build in suburban Detroit and they could build a house and have the thing and get the car. And So that model worked for <laughs> a long time. Yeah. When did fringe benefits start getting eroded? And like, would we still be here right now if fringe benefits didn't get eroded? Well, I, I don't know that it was fringe benefits that got eroded. It was fringe benefits are still around. I think fringe benefits became... Uh, table stakes. So it was more like it was no longer a competitive edge, right? It was yeah. like, well, I can kind of go anywhere and get that. So yeah. now what? The real thing that eroded was loyalty. Yeah. Well, yeah, lo- the loyalty, when the loyalty went away and the and the pensions were sort of mirages and they weren't real. Yeah. And they were economically poorly designed because they weren't fundable. Like they weren't sustainable. And like, I don't think anybody knew it in the very beginning, but like, they knew it after a while, but they were sort of kicking the can down the road. It's it's not different from what we've got with Social Security right now. Social Security by 2028 is not tenable based on the current trajectory that we're on with it. In any case, the point yeah. being is when these when these sort of loyalty systems broke down, right? And I would I would attribute this to the NBA culture. So in the 60s, in 70s, in 80s, and even into the 90s, you had optimization of business. So like everything went to spreadsheets, optimizing margins, you know, trying to really make efficiencies, cut costs. And, you know, a lot of, you know, global competition came into mix. So there's a ton of reasons for this, but it really took the focus off of this mutualistic, at least what was semi-mutualistic loyalty that existed where like, Hey, you're going to take care of me and my family and I'm going to subjugate myself to you for 30 years. And then I get to retire and have the white picket fence, right? Yeah. Oh, you said MBA with an M. MBA culture. So I thought you said MBA, and I thought this was going to be an example about how like contract negotiation and the MBA led to change. No, I'm talking about how we we started depersonalizing business, right? So instead of the human element of loyalty, right? So we started talking about our labor resources as human capital. Like that wasn't a term that came in until the NBA culture could, kicked in and they start labeling shit. And it's like human resources and human capital and like all this. It's like, it's very depersonalized. We're talking about human beings with families and problems and money and bills. And we depersonalized it. So then it's like, what's the, you know, then we start saying shit like, well, it's not personal. It's just business. Yeah. yeah it's really personal, dude. It's fucking yeah. really personal. Excuse my French. But it's really, really personal to people. So, like, it's, those kinds of things are I call BS. Yeah. You've got to get back to a place where it's like, look, yes, work needs to get done. Yes, we need to do it efficiently. But we can do both. We can treat people like humans. And we can give them, well, look, it's no longer a competitive advantage to have these, this or that benefit. Why are we still using this as competition? Why are we forcing employers to replicate all of these infrastructural systems that are very expensive and costly for them to replicate. Why are we doing that? Why don't we just create a public utility infrastructure and let the individuals opt into it? And that way they can just kind of float around and allocate their time and attention and don't make the employer, the formerly known as employers, have to sure. deal with any of that stuff. So we're, we're coming up on time, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to, is there anything, any lasting thoughts that you'd like to leave with our unemployable attendees? The concept of unemployable by choice, I think, is 
super fun. Like it's a super fun meme. I think, uh, you know, you look around and you talk about other memes that are out there in the, the kind of web three space, but I think it's a, I think it's a super fun thing to think about. And I think it's something that anybody who really cares about being their best person should consider going solo. Now, if you're, Look, no one's going to tell you to quit your job in a in a bear market or in a down market and any of that. But like there's already 35 million people running around the US right now that classify themselves as self-employed or independent working. Yeah. You know, come come join the movement. We've created it in such a way that the the ask and the lift is super low for you. The cost is super low. And the benefit that you get is orders of magnitude more. It's saving 20 to 50% on your healthcare insurance just for showing up as compared to the state exchanges. I mean, it's pretty good. Come talk to us is all I really have to say because, you know, there's not really much to sell about Opolis. I mean, the idea, the vision, the grand why of, what, of where we're going and what we're doing is pretty powerful. So become yeah, unemployable. It certainly is. I am. You are. Is there any uh, Eat Denver Alpha you want to you wanna drop? Anything you're really excited about for this year? Oh, man. Dude, the level of, you know, every year we always talk about, like, trying to outdo ourselves. Like, and this year, 13,000 people from 111 countries was, like, a lot. Yeah. And we're, like... How do we even outdo that? Well, it turns out we're doing it. So it could be easily 30,000 people. Whoa. Yeah. That's I mean, a lot of people. Yeah. Well, as you know, we had to move venues and we're now at the National Western Complex, which is huge space and yeah. can easily handle the amount of numbers that we're talking about. It's going to be fascinating to see how it goes. I mean, obviously, the first year in a new venue, we're, you know, trying to dot our I's and cross our T's to make sure we don't miss anything. But like, yeah. yeah. So a couple of things, um, if you don't know, if you apply to eat Denver, which is always free, but mm -hmm. if you stake 5,000 spork, which is the community token, you can actually get priority review. And if you have a bufficorn in your, which is actually the thing that's behind Josh there, like these guys. Um, if you have one of those, uh, which is the you can get on OpenSea or most NFT marketplaces, um, you you can. There's a whole bunch of utility for those things. So you're gonna those are the alpha pieces. You're gonna want those. Trust me. Ooh. You're gonna want to do that. Yeah, the unemployable university crowd's familiar with buffcorns because I give them away. I have a lot of buffcorns. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. I have a lot too, sir. Yes, John, like the original unemployable founder of the meme are you like king unemployable no king's not the right word uh, I'm the, oh, uh, the original unemployable right but, so like yeah so uh, the backstory on that actually if anybody cares was josh and i used to do joint pitches together back before we were even fully launched this is like pre-private alpha talking to people socializing spring 2020 yeah and and i would refer to myself as you know, I'm unemployable. Like I literally can't, I've been on my own for so long that like, I, I can't imagine working for someone else. So the unemployable meme was sort of something we used to use in general conversation, but then like it became more of a, like, you know what? That's kind of what we're building here is we're building the framework that makes it so you don't have to go back and work for anyone again. You can work with a lot of people, but you don't have to work for them. Yeah. In terms of the traditional hierarchy.
And I, I'm still so beaten into the like hierarchy that you still often remind me that I work with you and not for you. Yeah, I mean, we obviously <laughs> have. I, I always we have like a hierarchy of responsibility for execution, but it's sure. not a hierarchy of power and control. You know, we work with each other by choice, right? Which is really what I envision the future to be: much more fluid, much more high velocity, much more by choice. Which, depending on what kind of libertarian friends you have choice is the cornerstone of freedom right so giving people choice around their employment decisions we feel like is a critical path to giving people ultimate control and infinite choice around their commercial decisions fantastic john thank you so much for joining us on unemployable today this is a great conversation. I know the community is going to love it. Before we sign off, how can listeners connect with you? So I'm at Paller John on Twitter, and that's probably the best way to find me. If you want to follow me there, you can follow me on Twitter, or you can find me in Telegram at John Paller. But please don't spam me. As always, to the unemployable community, I'd love to hear your reactions and thoughts to the episode. You can tweet at the show at Opolis with the hashtag UnemployablePod. At Unemployable, I'll always be looking ahead to see what's on the horizon and bringing you top strategies for thriving in the new economy with freedom, flexibility, and peace of mind. I hope you got a lot out of this episode on democratizing employment. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Your ratings and reviews help other unemployables find the show. Until next time, I'm your host, Joshua Lapidus a founding steward of Opolis, co-founder of SportDAO, decentralized employment maxi, and tenured professor here at Unemployable University. I'm John Power, and I'm Unemployable. <laughs>